Hi, this is Johnny Owens, and you're listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Bada bing! All right, so this is the initial Owens Recovery Science intro podcast. Actually, well, let me introduce Tori. Tori is our engineer in the room. How you doing? Good. Is that what we're going to call you? Engineer or producer? Oh, yeah. And you are working the wheels of steel, right? That's right. All right. How, how are the sound levels? They're good. Okay. So, yeah, so this isn't really the first podcast. We did a one, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. One week ago, just practicing to make sure that, that we could do this. And I got, I got to say, Tori, that probably wasn't the best podcast we've ever done. Probably not. Probably not. We mostly talked about your education, right? Yeah. So a couple things we covered, because you can't get that one anymore. And, and Ben Weatherburn's in here, too. Just I don't really need these guys here, but I didn't want to stare and just talk to a mic the whole time. <laughs> and so we covered Tori's education, Ben. So first we found out that she's homeschooled. So that explained a whole a lot. lot. Yeah, that, 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 and, you know, that's just a whole can of worms we want to go into. And then what we went into was um, the fact that her school doesn't have a mascot. Northwest Vista, mm-hmm. her college. Northwest Vista. No mascot. No mascot. So that really, I mean, it's insightful of a podcast going on that. So the one thing, you know, I threw out there right off the bat is, you know, we should probably talk to your school about that. But Vikings came to mind. But but Vikings, obviously, that's that's kind of taken it. That, that's passe. So mm-hmm. I, what it, I think we came to the conclusion, Tori, that it was going to be the Northwest Vista Vultures yeah. is what you were going to go try and talk to your school about. I don't know that. Do you think that would go over well at your school? No? No? (laughs) So I guess the Northwest Vista vapes, vapors, to make it more relevant to today's age, right? (laughs) I I don't think it's taken. Yeah. So I'm sure there's a lot of hipsters. So so anyways, that was the first podcast. I'll just say that Tori did say that was up for like, what, a night just to practice, see if it just could go to iTunes. And we did get one. Sub- listener, subscriber. We got like three subscribers. Three subscribers. And then, uh, one or two that liked it. Yep, one or two that liked it. So, so huge success. I'm saying if that was a success, this is going to be like the best <laughs> podcast ever that we've already got subscribers for that. Or I don't know, maybe a lot of people want to hear about schools that don't have mascots. So anyways, we, we might have a podcast where we discuss that deeper if people want to hear that. But that's truly not what we want to do with this podcast. So this today is just to kind of go over an intro of, of why we're doing this podcast, who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and, and um, why people might really want to subscribe You know, more than just learning about schoolless mascots without schools or schools without mascots, whichever one works. And so who we are. So we are um, Owens Recovery Science, and, and what we are is a, a company that primarily does certification training for clinicians to learn blood flow restriction training. And we call it personalized blood flow restriction because uh, we personalize the amount of blood we restrict in each patient uh, specific to, to their own blood flow um, going into the limb. And, and so we train people in how you would maybe do this technique or not maybe how you would do this technique inside the clinical setting. And then we also distribute the blood flow restriction device that you would use to do that in a clinical setting. And so if you want to know more, it's probably because I just really muffed that up, I think. Go to www. Can you just do the www or should you do the HTTP backslash backslash? You don't need a www. They get that now. Yeah. Okay. And it, it doesn't require the www anymore. Really? Yeah. You can go any website without This whole time? Yeah. Been wasting your you time just, with W's. You just bumped my productivity. That's crazy. <laughs> I do the HTTPP or PP <laughs> with a double double black slash, but I can never remember what it is. It's forward slash. Yeah. What do you use to do that? You don't need anything. Is that what that Google is for? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So go to owensrecoveryscience.com. If that doesn't work, type the www first. And our website will tell you everything that's, that basically I think you need to know to at least get a, a basic understanding of who we are and, and what we do. Because every time I do podcasts for other people, they always started off with, hey, tell us what blood flow restriction is. And so we kind of just want to get that out of the way today because we don't want to re-explain blood flow restriction 
on every podcast. And so we primarily focus on it in the clinical setting and in the performance setting with a lot of these teams we work with. But, but here's what blood flow restriction is pretty much in a nutshell. We use a surgical grade tourniquet and we put it on the proximal thigh or, or the proximal arm and inflate that tourniquet to a set pressure based on the blood flow moving into the patient's limb. And we, once we find out how much pressure is needed to completely stop blood flow, and that's variable. So here's the things that can, that can matter for knowing how much blood flow uh, pressure is needed. So the size of the limb matters, the density of the limb, so much adipose tissue versus muscle tissue you have, the width of the cuff, is the cuff tapered or not, where is the cuff placed, blood pressure plays into it as well. Recently, or what, last year, Jeremy's group showed um, males need more pressure on average than females, blacks need more pressure on average than, than whites and, and uh, Latinos. So um, those are all different variables that you got to find. And so there's no one equation that you can use to, to figure that out. So you, you can't capillary refill. It has no bearing on it. Blood pressure is just one value in, in all those equations. So the gold standard is to, to use some sort of Doppler system. So we have a Doppler system that we use in our tourniquets that's, that's built into the tourniquet cuff and system itself. And, and so what it, it truly is is what's called an LOP, limb occlusion pressure. And so we take the cuff up and pump it, pump it, pump it until we know what the full pressure is to make all the blood stop into the limb. And then we back it off some if we're doing what's called blood flow restriction. There's another thing we're going to talk about we're really doing a lot nowadays is ischemic preconditioning. That one we don't back off. We actually keep it at full pressure. But for blood flow restriction, we back it off to a percentage. And so it's real debatable what the exact percentage is. And we kind of, we'll talk about a lot, you know, what's the best pressures to use in the upper extremity or lower extremity. But then you back it off and you allow some arterial inflow to go into the limb and you pretty much completely block venous return going out of the limb. All right. Does that make sense, Tori? Yes. You're the layman in here, the laywoman. So you tell me if this gets really, you know, we're getting too out there. Okay. You're on track. Okay. And so then once you know what the pressures are and how much percentage you're going to work out at, then we basically choose an exercise that's a rehab exercise at a lower weight than what should physiologically make adaptive changes. So we've pretty much all known that ACSM guidelines say that you should lift moderate to heavy weights to make adaptive changes. You read every blood flow restriction paper, it starts with this. ACSM guidelines say that novice lifters should lift, or novice, intermediate to advanced lifters should lift 65% of a one rep max over 12 to 16 weeks to make uh, muscle quantity and quality changes. That, that's how they all start. And so that's like the 11th commandment of blood flow restriction, uh, of, of, of weightlifting or just resistance training. But we can't really do that in a clinical setting because most patients can't lift that much weight because they either had surgery or they're hurt or they're elderly and they can't tolerate that load or whatever. So rehab has been kind of breaking the physiological rules in a bad way because we've been just kind of like, well, you know, we can't lift heavy weights, so we're just going to do this little band thing and pretend like it's heavyweight and, and hope that we make adaptive changes, right? And do the same kind of weight that we, or same kind of reps that we would with heavyweight. Exactly. And so it, it just has never made sense to me. Um, most, you know, we talk to real physiologists, people that know the way around muscle. They're going to say, you guys look like you're doing more range of motion than you're actually doing lifting to, to create muscle adaptive changes. But if we are able to deoxygenate the limb, then we are able to hopefully get into more of the anaerobic pathway and get to what are the money fibers, which are these fast twitch fibers, right? So the fast twitch fibers are the, are the ones that we really want to go after to start to create this anabolic cascade and, and get adaptive changes in muscle quantity and quality. What do you think? Making sense, Tori? Yes. Okay. Because I'm going to have you re review all of this at the very end. Okay. All right. Taking notes. Okay. The volume's still looking good, though. So you're, not, you're still practice engineering, okay? So I want you to pay attention to that. Okay. Don't forget your job. So once you have figured out your percentage of, of pressure, so we call limb occlusion pressure how much pressure it takes to make all the blood stop. And then you got to personalize it to each patient because Grandma Smith might only need this much pressure and 
big old pro athlete might need a lot more pressure just because their limbs are so different. But once you've personalized it to each patient, then you go through a set exercise at a low weight. The typical weight that you read again in the majority of the blood flow restriction literature says between 20 to 30% one rep max. Okay. Some people say 30% is the sweet spot. That is what you should go for. That is super hard to do in the rehab setting as well, right? You know what a one rep max is, Tori? Okay, so imagine I said, how much weight can you lift one time? Where you're like, oh, that's it. I can't lift any more than that. And then say, Tori can lift 400 pounds on a bench press. Then we say, that's your one rep max, but you need to work out at at least 65% of that to make a change, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't even test a one rep max. Because if you just had surgery on your shoulder and I said, let's go test your one rep max. And I say, I can't because the doctor said, don't do that. What are you doing? Right? So we can't test one rep maxes. So in the clinical setting, we don't really always get to hit on what the BFR papers all tell us to do, the 20 to 30% one rep max. So we, we have to kind of work our way around that. And we'll get into that probably in later podcasts of like, how do we figure the exact targeted load? One, you know, one thing that we do is we count sets and reps. And that's pretty much what most people do in the published BFR literature. They do a set of 30, which is a high volume set at the very start. And that basically, that first set of 30 rings out what's called the Krebs cycle. It gets the, basically the last bits of oxygen out of the blood. That first set of 30 at a light weight, it's super easy. Most people are like, this is too easy. You need to add some weight. They're like, no, 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 wait, wait, bro. That's going to get fun here in a minute, right? And so they do that first set of 30. They're like, that was easy. People told me this is hard. You say, well, hold on. You got to turn it on your leg. You're not getting any more oxygen in there. Your slow twitch fibers aren't going to be able to keep doing what they do. And I want to get to these fast twitch fibers, right? And so then they take a 30-second rest and we keep the tourniquet on so they can't re-oxygenate. Then we say, now go. Three more sets of 15. Now do a set of 15. All of a sudden, like, golly, this feels harder. Because now they're having to use what are the fast switch fibers, which are the bigger motor units, which require more force port output. Forced out. Did I say it right? Forced out. Force output. All right. And that's harder for them to push. And they're like, golly, did you add more weight? You say, no, it's the same one pound weight. Do you want me to take that off? They're like, no. Well, yeah, take it off. It's too hard. And so we start taking it off. They do that set of 15. And you take a 30-second rest with the tourniquet on right? Mm -hmm. So they're still not getting oxygen into their limb. And now during that rest period, it starts to suck because they've built up these lactate molecules. For every one glucose molecule, you're getting a couple of lactate molecules cleaved off, hydrogen ions. So you get an acidity in your muscle, muscle stress, right? So then you say, now go second set of 15. And they're like, golly, this is really getting hard now because they're having to use more fast twitch fibers. Because kind of once you use those fast twitch fibers, they're done. They're like, I'm done, son. You use me. Now you got to use this guy next to me. And you use the guy next to you, and it's working harder. And now the guy's like, did you have more weight? No, I took that one-pound weight off. He's like, now take my shoe off. God, it weighs too much. So you take the shoe off. They're like, oh, this has been too hard. They do that set of 15. And now they've really built up a lot of muscle stress, sheer muscle terror, right? They take a 30-second rest. And then that rest period really sucks. That's the worst one, right? I think the rest is almost worse than the Rest other is time. the worst, right? Because all your brain, that's all I can think about is all those, we call them muscle waste products. I guess the physiology's muscle guys all pissy because they're muscle metabolites because they're probably important to have a signal. And so the last set of 15, they go and they're like, God dang, this is so hard because they can't use any slow twitch. Oxygen's gone, right? Those, those slow twitch fibers are like, there's no way. There's not even a shoe on here. We should be able to do this, but we can't because we don't have oxygen. The fast twitch fibers are like, I know you guys suck because y'all should be doing this, but we have to. And now because we have to, we're going to have to add muscle. Because and we'll talk about this in a second. When they are activated, it's 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 basically a signal that okay, we're gonna have to add some muscle to this. So then they do that last set of fifteen. You're hoping that last set of fifteen, the last rep, they're like, ah, I can't do another rep. Ugh, done, right? Then you deflate. So then you deflate it from that point. If you did that 30, 30 second rest, 15, 30 second rest. 15, 30 second rest, and a final 15. And you just said, okay, let's do this at a slow pace, what we call like a four second time under tension, one, two concentric, one, two back. That amount of time with rest periods, that's about a six and a half minute session, right? So that's six and a half minutes of sheer muscle terror that you just created, right? And it's terrible because you get done, right, Ben? It's oh, yeah. the worst thing ever um, in a good way. But that sheer muscle stress and terror you created, creates the signal and the processes needed 
to either slow atrophy during periods of disuse, or once we're able to start actually get a little bit of load, maybe closer to 20 to 30%, 1RMs that you see in all these published BFR studies to create some strength and hypertrophy. Strength is obviously getting stronger, and for Tori here, hypertrophy is making the muscle bigger because we got a real, real problem in rehab. People are losing muscle rapidly whenever they're in periods of disuse, and we'll go into that deep in some other podcasts of what the mechanisms are that we think um, from, from really good, smarter people than us have told us of why we go into muscle atrophy. Because there's a debate like, well, you get people like, oh, well, BFR, it's, you know, it doesn't add this much muscle or you should lift heavy. Yes, if you can lift heavy, lift heavy. We're not, we're not anti-heavy people. I would rather lift heavy than put a tourniquet on, right? There's a lot of positive things we can get from this tourniquet though. But if you can't lift heavy, this really, really looks like the best solution because, in our opinion, because of what you just created with that whole hypoxic environment, all right? And so one of our old scientists, when we were first doing this at the Department of Defense, told us, um, he was kind of an evolutionary physiologist, and he did like his PhD work on kangaroos, which is really cool, actually. We developed this exoskeleton kind of based off his work with kangaroo Achilles, which I'd love to talk about. It was a great story. Um, but anyways, he, he, he came over and he was working with us and we were discussing some of our problems we were having with getting strength and hypertrophy after blast trauma. And he said, look, you know, the one thing I remember is the body hates to put on muscle. It really does. Some people are lucky. They, they sneeze and they seem like they put muscle on, you know, those, those, those lucky bastards. I don't have that problem. I, I don't either. I wish I did. Um, but they, um, what, what, what he said was, look, you have to create sheer muscle stress to make the muscle understand you went through something bad. And he said, always, always, always think about the caveman times. And we're still in that evolution physiologically, all right? Even though we can eat a lot more food, our body still thinks that we're cavemen and we have to run around and get a bunch of berries to eat. And so I used to use the analogy, if a caveman ran away from a dinosaur and someone pointed out very smartly in a class, there were cavemen and dinosaurs were not together. So if a caveman's running from a saber-toothed tiger for his life and he's using all his fast twitch fibers and he's sprinting and jumping and doing everything, like it looks like a CrossFit workout maybe, and finally gets away and lives, your body's going to be like, holy hell, that was terrible. I, I just feel all this muscle stress there. I'm going to give you a little bit more muscle to make you bigger, faster, stronger next time, right? But with that muscle that your body says, I'm going to give you a little bit more so you can outrun that saber-toothed tiger. But with muscle comes a cost. And with the cost comes increased metabolism because now you add more myocytes or muscle cells to hypertrophy more. But every time you take in protein, you get more protein synthesis, which is driven by the energy in your body, ATP, which means the more muscle, the more basic energy usage you have. And if all I got is a bunch of berries, your body's like, I don't want to give you a lot of extra muscle, right? Because I'm, I'm just going to be starving all the time. Right. So our patients have to earn it. And that guy also said, very smart guy, I'm going to have him on this podcast. Um, if your patient can be on their cell phone while they're doing exercises in the clinic that you say is for strength and hypertrophy, it ain't working. They ain't muscle stress, right? I have some great videos we use of the cell phone test of some pro athletes who can't even like Snapchat out or check Tinder or whatever while they're doing BFR. You know if you get a pro athlete that can't use their cell phone while they're in there, you're doing something right. So that's sheer muscle stress. Or if they're smiling while they're trying to do resistance exercises that are causing sheer muscle stress, it ain't working. With BFR, both those get met, just yeah. like with lifting heavy. Yeah, BFR face is a real thing. BFR face is a real thing, right? So that muscle stress is what we're looking for, and that's what we do when we deoxygenate this muscle with these tourniquets on the limb. Because your body doesn't know, is it a silly tourniquet that's on my leg and I'm lifting just my shoe, or is it I've got a big old rack of weights on my back and I'm having to lift heavy weights, or am I running from a saber-toothed tiger? Your body's just like, why is there so much acidity? Why is there sheer muscle stress in this limb? Now, that's that's one basic overall theory. We all agree that that's pretty much what happens. But then it's like, well, what's the true thing that drives BFR? We're going to get to that deep. You know, Some people, it's just like it's the muscle activation. You just, you know, the higher that EMG gets and muscle activation, then, then that's your win, which is that's obvious. Ed. Some people are like, well... It's, it's the swelling effect that happens. And, and then from that swelling, 
you get where the myocyte swell and, and the muscle fiber swells, and, and that starts this anabolic cascade. Or some people are like, no, it's the stem cells that get upregulated, and there's myogenic stem cells that come out, muscle stem cells are what those are, and those add more myocyte content to the fiber, and that's what it is. And it's obviously, it's usually a cluster, right, when no one can agree. Some people like lean more on the side of the other, and we're going to talk about all those theories on all these different podcasts and, and, and how you can manipulate those in certain ways. So that's kind of BFR in a nutshell. Go to our website. You know, we have a ESPN video that, that we did on Outside the Lines. And it actually has an NBA guy who has the tourniquets on, and, and they're interviewing him and talking with him. Um, and it has little cartoon drawings of the way the veins and arteries work with it. And one time I was trying to explain this to an orthopedic surgeon buddy, and he's like, I didn't really understand what you're saying until I saw the little cartoon drawings. So maybe maybe it's something on orthopedic surgeons there, or maybe it is, you know, that you should just watch that video and not listen to me ramble. Okay, makes sense. All right, so that's what BFR is. How how did how did this all start with Owens Recovery Science, and how did I get started in it? All right, so I've talked about this on old podcasts, and I don't want to go too deep, but I, I'm from West Texas, so everything has to have a story. So this is our origin story. I was with the Department of Defense since 2004, and, and we're in San Antonio, Texas, which is military city, USA, right? Um, when I came on, I was came on primarily as, as kind of the sports med guy to help ramp up the sports medicine program. I'm, I'm a physical therapist, got out of school in 98. My, my whole passion and training was sports medicine. And so they were trying to really ramp that up. And I, and I remember talking to the chief that was interviewing me and, and her assistant and said, you know, it's kind of weird. We're talking about ramping up this whole sports medicine program here when the wars have started. Um, you know, it seems just kind of like a the war is going to take precedence and, and the wars had just kind of started taking off. And they said, well, no, you know, Desert Storm 1, we really overprepared for it. Um, and, and, and we were really thinking mass casualties, Saddam's talking blood in the streets. Were you even born Desert Storm 1, Tori? Do you even know when that was? You probably weren't. Um, so anyways, there was hardly any casualties that came back. I mean, very, very few to, to, to down here at the Brooke Army Medical Center. Now it's San Antonio Military Medical Center, right? And so they said, you know, for Desert Storm, for this one, you know, it's, it's probably we're seeing the same thing. We're going to get in, get out, you know, special forces driven, all this sort of stuff. Just to put this in perspective, last year we put a paper um, in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma that it was called What We've Learned from 14 Years of War, right? So from something they thought was going to barely anything, it was 14 years, and it was a way, way bigger deal than, than we thought it was. So my life transitioned from sports medicine with the with the military folks to sports medicine along with the combat casualty which was primarily a limb salvage have you heard that term limb salvage story what are you looking for <laughs> sorry <laughs> 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 um, limb salvage salvage your limb <laughs> yeah well that's good if you don't know just flip the words around right and you sound like you know well no it's it is salvaging your limb and limb salvage. That, but that's basically, we were having folks come back. And in prior wars, people would come back from, from combat. And if they had really bad limb trauma, they would just cut the limb off. Usually, you know, like stuff you'd see, at, you know, well, probably for you, maybe Forrest Gump, maybe for me from MASH, right? Where, where someone loses their limb. Um, but now it was getting where they wanted to salvage the limb, keep it attached, and get them back to the base so the, what we call the MTFs, the military treatment facilities, where we can make these decisions with the family members, with the peer groups, with medical folks to say, look, do you want to keep your limb or do you want to cut it off? So the majority of people, when they got back and they kept their limb, you know, all the way from Afghanistan or Iraq, they said, well, I kept the limb all the way here. I'd kind of like to try and see if I could keep it. So majority of the service members that we would see would say, I want to try and salvage my limb. I, want to, I don't want to amputate. I want to keep it. So this limb salvage program became huge. We had just way more salvage service members than we had actual amputees coming back, right? So our program had these, these guys and girls all over the place with just mangled limbs, trying to keep their limbs on. And what we were finding out was what we could do to try and get them back to functioning really well, like running, psh, forget it. You know, most of them hardly could ever get back to running. Sometimes just barely walking was all we could do, right? And they were saying, that's just not enough. This is not good. So cut my limb off. So they would come. They would keep it. It would take a couple years to try and salvage it. 
And then a couple years later, they come back and just cut their and say, I need to cut it off, which seemed like a big waste of time, right? And we were, we were looking and retrospectively, we, we did some papers that, that looked at it and it was like, man, we had a pretty decent fail rate here with this. So we started building up other programs to see, can we do other things to salvage the limb? And so two of the things we did to salvage the limb are why we really started looking at blood flow restriction. One was you can run in a prosthetic, what an amputee wears, okay? You can run because they're just kind of bouncing on carbon. They don't have a limb below there. And so if they said, I want to run, but they said a limb and it was mangled, the only solution we had was to go ahead and cut the limb off, right? Mm -hmm. But we said, well, what if we build a prosthetic around that limb, right? So it's actually at that point, it would be an orthotic, but really what we were calling it was an exoskeleton. So they had this mangled limb and we would build this carbon and Kevlar exoskeleton around their lower leg. And if you could teach them to push hard enough into the ground to make all that carbon and Kevlar bend on the back of the leg, we found that we, these folks were able to start to run again. And so this program took off, man, took off like crazy. And we had to make up a name for it. Did you ever hear the story about the name, Ben? Ideal. Ideal? Ryan Blanc and I were walking to a meeting with everyone, the command and all these people from Belvoir, and they wanted to know a name of this device because the DOD was going to patent the device. And they said, what's y'all's name for this? And we were walking the meeting, and we said, uh, it's from the Intrepid Center, so let's say it that. Um, it's dynamic, right? It, ortho no, we don't want to call it an orthotic. It's better than orthotic. It's called an exoskeleton. And then... But we have to call it an orthotic because it kind of is in case, you know, we do want to look for a billing code. So it's called the Intrepid Dynamic Exoskeletal Orthosis. And we went over there and we, we presented and we called it that. And, and the guys looked at us and said, that is the dumbest name ever. Like, how are we ever going to call it that? But they stuck with it. They said, let's just call it the Idea, Right. And so they called it the Idea. That's how I got its name. Huh. Yeah. So the real long name, they hated, but they yeah. went with Idea. Then we found out there's this huge company in, LA, in California already called Idea, But, you know, the DOD does what they want. But that device was so awesome, Tori that they were able to, the DOD patented that device. We've had, I don't know what our numbers are now, but at one point, I think our last epi paper, we were at 1,500 plus service members that are using the device. I just talked to one of my old patients the other day, he's redeploying in one of these device, special forces guys. This thing was a huge success, right? But you had to be strong in your thigh muscle to make this device work. And, and you can go online, type in, IDEO, Center for the Intrepid, there's a bunch of awesome videos. Now this company, Hanger, has it on the civilian side. It's called the Exosim. You know, they try to make a cooler name. Right. Um, and so that device wouldn't work unless you were strong in your thigh. Okay? But remember what I said earlier. How do you get strong, Tori? Have you been listening there? Are you just working no, the wheels of steel? Well, sorry, you're, you're doing two things. You're engineering. You have to lift weight, right? You have to push heavy weight to try and get your thigh strong. And so here's the problem, right? A lot of these people with that kind of blast trauma and mangled limbs, you would say, can you push weight? And they say, heck no, I can barely walk, right? How can I push weight? So they can't lift it because of pain intolerance or they just can't handle that load. But then you know what we found too? A lot of people, they would come. Let me go back here. You would come and you would say, I want to get one of these ideas. Intrepid dynamic orthosis. I want to get, you know what I was talking about, right? I want to get one of these things because I heard the best things in sliced bread. Okay, cool. You look like you, you, you're a good candidate. You got a fused ankle, right? There was a big group we did it on. Let's go test your strength. Let's go test it on ice kinetics. We got a biomechanics lab. Let's go test your strength. And then we test them and they'd be weak. Weak, 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 right? Like, well, yeah, I've, for two years I've been injured and I can't hardly do anything. But... It doesn't hurt so bad. I just can't. My calf doesn't work because my ankle's fused and my, my ankle doesn't move. But I can lift weight because we're like, your thigh muscle has to be strong to work this thing. So we're like, okay, and they can even handle the loads. So we'd say, okay, go back. And a lot of them were special forces. Go back and work with Thor, who, you know, your special forces programs, and get strong for, for eight weeks, right? So we'd send them home. You had to go home. You had to come back and show us that you've gotten we'd literally these numbers we'd look at to see if this device would work. And lots of times they would come back, and guess what? And they were like, I'm lifting the amount of weight greater than 65% 1RM ACSM guidelines. They would come back when you retest them. Their strength had almost not changed at all, right? So you're like, what the heck? Because physiologically, they should have gotten stronger. And our orthodox are like, you freaking rehab guys ever heard of like a leg press? Why can't you all get these people stronger? What's the deal? 
But everyone in rehab who's been at it long enough has had these patients who it's like, I've done 90 different quad exercises on this guy. And his thigh muscle just will not get stronger after his surgery. I do not know what the deal is. And they're banging their head against the wall. And they're blaming themselves. Now, in what our scientists at the, at the Institute of Surgical Research, which is across the street from our, our facility, what they were showing us and are showing us still is after you're injured, muscle changes, right? So after you're injured, after, you're, after you tear your ACL, what happens? Does the muscle change, right? It shouldn't. It's just a stupid ligament. But... Chris Fry and Brian Norin, two, two of our buddies, great, smart guys, they did a landmark study in JBJS, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. After someone tore their ACL, they biopsied the good quad on them, and they biopsied their hurt quad. And when they looked at it after they tore it, the quad muscle, the thigh muscle, was different. The good muscle looked like muscle. The hurt muscle was surrounded by fibrosis around the muscle fiber. The myogenic stem cells, which are the things that you have to come out to be long-term muscle growth, were significantly down. And then they did rehab for six months and repeated that study, and the muscle was still messed up, still had fibrosis around the muscle fiber, still had down-regulated myogenic stem cells, which means there's a pathway that happened after the injury that changed the muscle. And now that muscle doesn't respond right. Ashish Betty over at Michigan, what, what he showed is, after you tear your ACL, for 12 weeks, this thing called myostatin is significantly elevated. Have you heard of myostatin, Tori? No? All right, myostatin, was, it's a great story. Dr. Leah Johns Hopkins in the 90s, he was looking for the gene responsible for protein synthesis. He knocked that gene out in a mouse. And if you knock protein synthesis out in a mouse or a human, then you're, you should die because you can't do protein synthesis. You're just going to die. And the mouse didn't die. So Dr. Lee threw that mouse back into the cage. Luckily for him, he didn't sacrifice the mouse after the study. And then weeks later, this mouse was freaking huge. It was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger mouse. So then they killed the poor mouse and, and, and uh, dissected it, and the mouse was just full of muscle. So when that myostatin gene they thought was responsible for protein synthesis was the gene that blocks protein synthesis. And so if myostatin doesn't go down, then you're not going to be able to increase muscle. If myostatin goes up, it really is probably blocking the ability to add muscle and it's probably making you lose muscle, right? So Ashish Betty showed us that 12 weeks after you tear your ACL, myostatin's up, right? So if you're not doing anything to decrease that myostatin pathway, you're up against it. So as rehab people, we're like, man, I can load them, it's not working, or I can't load them, it's not working. And we're really, really having issues. And so we're going to talk about that a lot in this podcast, too. That's going to be fun stuff. Hopefully we have Ashish on here and Johnny Hewitt and those guys um, to talk about these things that are pathway-driven that therapists are, are dealing with that we don't have good solutions for. And it looks like with BFR, there might be solutions. There also might be some pharmacological things that are down the pipe that will help with this as well. So these people that needed the IDEO, service members, couldn't get strong enough. And if you can't get strong enough, that stiff exoskeleton owned your knee. And it would make your knee almost feel like it would dislocate. So these guys would try it on and be like, I tried to run and my knee felt like it was about to pop through the back of my leg. This thing sucks. I'm just going to cut my leg off. So we're like, golly, we got to find a way to get these people strong in a way where they can't handle load. Or is there something that might reverse these pathways that have happened? And so that's where we started trying BFR on these folks. And so we, I think it was seven guys, um, special forces guys. We tried it on initially, retrospectively went back and looked at the results after two weeks and they had all, they were plateaued in strength. And after a couple of weeks, they all made gains in strength. And so we took that paper and we published it in the journal of special forces as our first BFR paper out of the DOD. Okay. So that was the first group that we started on at the department of defense. The second group was people who had chunks of muscle blown off. If you have chunks of muscle blown off, it's extremely debilitating. We have a, we have a paper that we wrote that showed the, the severe amounts of disability that caused even small chunks of muscle blown off in your lower extremities really debilitate your ability to ever get back to things like running and sprinting and soldiering type things. So what's called AFIRM is the military's regenerative medicine arm was put together to try and find solutions to like maybe can we regrow lost tissue in, in human beings. And so we really went down this, 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 this path of seeing, okay, if you have a chunk of muscle missing, can you regrow it? And so we 
we had the first service member that we tried this on. He took a RPG to his thigh, lost a ton of muscle in his thigh, and he wasn't able to make any strength gains. Just we did repetitively for months, checking strength, 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 never made a gain. So then we used this new regenerative medicine technique called an extracellular matrix. It was um, championed by doc, Dr. Badalak at the McGowan Institute and UPMC. He was our partner. And we put this thing into this person. He used it, stimulated it, and he regrew muscle tissue, right? That was the first time ever published that someone's shown that they've regrown lost muscle tissue um, in, in a human being. It, it even got me on 60-minute story. Do you know that? Yep. They filmed all day. 60 minutes for me to be on it for about 30 seconds. But you know what I also got out of that? An IMDB page. Someone, someone sent me. <laughs> I've got a, you know what that is, Tori? No, you're looking at me like, no. IMDB, like if you're a movie star, they have an IMDB page. Somehow, 30 seconds on 60 minutes, someone sent me a thing that, that I got on it. You hit your, your 15 minutes of fame. 30 seconds of fame. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, for those people... What we found, though, is to get a true regenerative medicine response and really regrow muscle tissue, what you need is to have a big anabolic signal because what we started finding out is when we were putting things in to regrow lost muscle tissue in people who the, it's been months or maybe a year later, we were mostly regrowing scar. So what we need to do is, what is, is increase the acuity, which means put it in closer to the time of injury and get a big old muscle workout like you're lifting heavy. But when you're just putting something in surgically on someone, again, you can't lift heavy. So the blood flow restriction was this was the second target population we're looking at is can we do things to regrow lost muscle tissue and then give an anabolic response through what we do in rehabilitation. So those were our two targets. Now I can put a link. Doc, uh, Dr. Walters, um, Tom, he has a great PowerPoint presentation on all this from the McGowan Institute. Um, it's pretty deep science, but we can put that in the link too. Um, we'll have links in the show notes to some of this stuff. Um, the third group was the sports medicine population because at our place, the center for the intrepid, we also, we did, we saw blast trauma, amputees, limb salvage, uh, but we also saw a lot of sports medicine injuries too. And so, um, Brett Owens and, and, and his colleagues, they put a paper out that said during 10 years of war, we also had 50,000 ACL injuries in the military as well. So not only we're we seeing the blast stuff, which everyone thinks about, we're seeing all the sports medicine problems too. So those were the three kind of target populations that, that we went after in the Department of Defense with blood flow restriction. And it took off at the Center for the Intrepid. I think every referral to the Center for the Intrepid pretty much had blood flow restriction, pre-surgery, post-surgery, chronic injuries, or whatever. And then basically um, what happened is I transitioned out of the, the Center for the Intrepid as a GS employee. I stayed on as a contractor, but then started consulting with uh, professional teams. The Houston Texans were the first team that I worked with, um, with Jadavian Clowney after his injury. He did fantastic after doing BFR. Um, we, I presented his results and what BFR was at the NFL Combine, and then it just kind of trickled from there. And so now pretty much we have um, every professional league um, we work with. So MLB, NBA, NFL, MLS, am I missing NHL. it? NHL. Sorry, NHL. I mean, we're in Texas. So <laughs> NHL. Um, we work with the majority of the teams in all those leagues. It's, it's gotten so big now in the professional leagues that actually we're on workers' comp in professional for the professional teams. That if someone gets injured, they can just have a prescription written for them from their doctor or their trainers, and they are able to get a BFR system for that person um, while they're recovering from their injury. We process workers' comp claims daily um, for all these professional teams. And now the majority of the college teams um, in, in all the big conferences and the small conferences too, it's even moved on to secondary insurance now for, for a lot of the colleges uh, to be able to do it. And now not only the DOD, the pro athletes, but now we're really looking at, you know, this is probably something that, that's more beneficial for the medically um, compromised or the older patient. So the total hip patient, the total knee patient, potentially a sarcopenic, which is an elder person who has a hard time putting muscle on. So it's really moved into the healthcare systems too. So UPMC, um, TRIA, Park Nicolette, Sanford, Memorial Hermann, Houston, Methodist Houston, you Twin name cities. it. Twin Cities Orthopedics, um, all, all over, HSS in New York. Anyways, now all these healthcare systems 
our, 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 who work with us as well. So, um, and, and, and private clinics. So we have what, over 3,000 certified providers in the yep. United States now. Um, 3,000 certified providers in the United States. It teams, colleges, te- teams pro and college teams, Department of Defense, private clinics, healthcare systems. And so it's, it's ballooned in, in what's only been like three years since we really started this, right? Not even three years, right? Now, we've been doing it a lot longer because I was doing it in the Department of Defense for a while, Um, but the civilian sector has taken off, and now it's global. So over in, it's in being done, we have people doing it for us in Amsterdam, in London. Um, We're probably getting ready to move into Taiwan, into the Middle East. Um, So teams have started to do it over there, and now even some of the, the healthcare systems are doing it as well. So we, what we do also is we have a certification course. If you're a clinician, we all, you, you can come to the course if you're not a clinician, right, like strength coach um, or, or I'm a researcher, but we only certify clinicians because we're in the clinical aspects of it. And so you can come to a course if you're a clinician, um, and it's, a, it's an all-day, it's a, it's a hard, long day from what most people tell us, um, going over training with a tourniquet, Training of this is what BFR is in, the, in, in labs. Now, why, why do we have a certification? Because I hate that term because certification gets thrown around way too much. But here's the problem. We are not taught how to use tourniquets in school. Okay, And so for just your general liability, and APTA has also helped us with, with understanding this, something like that, if you're not taught in school and curriculum, you need to be taught in an advanced training. So then you can do a, this training and say, yes, I understand tourniquet application and safety and contraindications, right? And then you're also not taught BFR in school. And so then you can say also, and yes, I understand at least the basics of BFR and how I could apply this for certain protocols. Okay. So that's why we do in the, you know, air quotes, certification course, which it is because you have to get advanced training. But that day, you can't get this all in one day. You really can't. And so we do a lot of continuing support for people to try and make sure they're comfortable with it. So our, our first thing we have is an, we have a private group on Facebook that is only for certified providers. And so only our people can be on there so that we can all understand and talk the same language and ask questions. And, and I, that thing's awesome. I mean, some of the questions that they get on there and get answered. We have an Andrews Train uh, medical doctor. Who's, who's our medical director, who's on there, and, and he answers questions. We have a sports dietitian who was with us at the Center for the Intrepid. She was with the Special Forces and at the Olympic um, Committee, or at the Olympic Committee, USOC. Um, she answers nutrition questions. We have BFR, myself, and all of our, Ben, and everyone that works with us, and other BFR researchers answers questions. And we also send content to people. We share papers with people, and so we always do as much as we can to help um, to help support more than just what one day could be. Does that make sense, Tori? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you sh- yeah, you're part of this, so you know that part, right? <laughs> All right. So that's kind of basic backstory. Now, whenever I'm interviewing, like, Dr. Walters or Ben Corona, or Josh, these guys that we'll be interviewing, they're, they were part of this original story. So it would be cool to get their takes on it all, you know, and they're crazy, like eyeballs popping out when I said I want to put tourniquets on these people, um, but also what they think it's doing to help it. So that being said, we also want to be the leaders to make sure that we're doing this right clinically. So we have a science and research advisory board. Um, I don't want to be the only guy making decisions on this because uh, I'm not that smart. We need other people to help with it. So Stephen Patterson, who's a big BFR researcher over in the UK, um, he's at St. Mary's University. Um, super smarter than me guy. He, he's the director of this board. And so he can, he can take questions that people have of like, Hey, we'd like to propose this research project and help us synthesize it a little bit. We have, uh, Dr. Larry Cahalan, um, from the university of Miami. He, he founded the APTA's, um, cardiac section. Um, he's basically wrote the book on cardiac rehab. So he's our guy when there's cardiac rehab or is this safe on for hemodynamics, or someone who's cardiovascularly compromised, um, he can help us with those answers. And he's also forming the research questions for us. Um, we have Jim McEwen, who's the godfather of tourniquets, uh, basically brought the modern day tourniquets into the OR. So he answers any tourniquet questions that we would have. Uh, Matt Proventure, who's a, a very well-respected um, 
sports medicine doctor. He's out of Stedman Philippon. Um, he was originally with the with this with the, our, our our Navy's most elite special forces. Then he went to um, to the the Patriots, um, and then he left the Patriots and is Stedman Philippon. He's our our sports medicine go to guy, Doctor Shu Joe Shu. He's one of the best trauma surgeons in the in the world, probably. He's our orthopedic trauma guy. So, anyways, that's our science and research advisory board. It's still being built with more people, so that we have this committee that comes together and says we should be researching this. Or, hey, someone has a question with this patient. What do we all think as a group? Um, and that being said, we have tons of studies. I've got the list right here. What, I think we were at 21 when you made this list. Is that right, Tori? When you're updating it? Thanks. So. You think so? I, but I, I think we because we're adding three more. So I. I Think we're at 24, um, but but these are these are kind of our sponsored clinical trials. Um, not being sponsored, but but they either are using you know our protocols or our, the Delphi system, um, or we just collaborate with them. But it, but it's everything. So we have the biggest blood flow restriction study in the world going right now. Did you know that, Tori? You did. Okay, good. So it's called Repair. Um, it's, it's sponsored by METRIC, the Major Extremity Trauma Research Consortium. It's a what they call a CDMRP grant, Congressionally Directed Military Research Program grant. $4 million study, 250 femur fractures. Um, one Half that group gets standard of care, half that group gets standard of care, but they put a tourniquet on and do blood flow restriction during that care to see after you break a long bone like that, can we keep your strength and hypertrophy when your periods are issues? Maybe can we make changes in the bone and can we increase function? So we had like those are the kind of studies we have going on. Tons of ACL studies. You know, I think there's like eight going on right now and two more that just got proposed. Um, but anything from acute ACL to prehab of ACL to chronic after ACL to, to kind of uh, subacute time frames and, and looking at everything from strength and hypertrophy to can you reduce fibrosis, can you upregulate stem cells, um, all sorts of things. We have a prehab study for total hips going on in Germany with, with uh, this group that's, that's um, very well respected in Dusseldorf, which is going to be an amazing study. We have a stem cell study going on with Andrews Research Foundation, seeing if we can in, upregulate uh, myogenic stem cells before we do these orthobiologics injections. Performance studies, University of Southern California, um, and that might be kind of one of the labs we do more and more performance studies with. And so we do these because we want to make sure that we're able to do a standardized approach, that we do this the safest way possible, and that we figure out which groups can benefit from it, which groups can't, or maybe we need to tweak it. Maybe they do better if we do it early, and they don't do so good if we do it late. So we're doing all these studies to try and put our money where our mouth is, and it's hard. It's super hard to do these studies. I spend more time working on these dang things than I do um, getting to go out there and just have fun teaching BFR. But but it's worth it. So I think we have over six million in research grant funds for for all these studies going on right now. But we and we also want to get the publications out there. So we put a techniques in orthopedics. I was guest editor. One of my uh, old buddies from the military, John Mason, uh, was also a guest editor, and then Dr. Brown. In techniques and orthopedics, and we we put um, what was it six papers, yeah. six papers. I, I got a bunch of my buddies in the BFR world to help put these papers out, and it's everything from what's the basic science behind BFR to how do you do it in after ACL to what's the safety of it, how do you do it with the elderly people, what about people with high blood pressure, um, what about the anabolic response and driving protein synthesis. So. We just published that a few months ago. We, we did one with uh, my buddy Jeremy Lenicky and, and, and his group out of Ole Miss on taking BFR from what we know from the lab setting to the clinical setting. Just had two good papers come out that we weren't published on, but but kind of, again, this is kind of where it's gone. And the Journal of Arthroscopy, it's a, that's a big journal for the orthopedic surgeons to look at. One from Dr. LaProd, who's the medical director at Stedman Philippon. And, and the other one from Dr. Brian Day, who's the past president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America, prior editor of Journal of Arthroscopy, both of them putting clinical commentaries of like why they think BFR is beneficial. This guy's crazy. In three years, all of a sudden, Journal of Arthroscopy, you got surgeons saying, look, I think we should be looking at doing this after, after surgery. And I totally agree. Don't you, Ben? Absolutely. Yep. So these studies, you know, we're hoping we get more and more to keep coming out, to keep driving it, because we want to get a code. We want the insurance people to get on board and start saying, yes, you got to go, and here's your code that you would use for, for blood flow restriction. Golly, I was going to do like 15 minutes. I think we're a little over that. God, sorry, Tori. Where are we at? An hour and a half? What does that mean? 
152. Uh, we're cutting some stuff out. Uh, we're cut- <laughs> no, no, Tori, you can't cut your parts out. <laughs> All right. So this podcast, what's it about? We are going to basically take a BFR topic, and it could be anything. It could be safety. What's the number one thing people want to know what the course has been? Is a tourniquet safe? Does it cause clots? No, 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 no. How does it work proximally? Yeah. That, man, that is the, everyone wants to know that. And then they do the goofy thing, like they, they, they do the, like, you put a tourniquet around your neck, or they do the goofy around the waist. Um, so proximal, you know, we'll talk, we have to talk about proximal, everyone wants to know. Uh, we probably know the least about that. But then also, like, getting hardcore, like, okay, let's look at TGF beta, or let's talk about VEGF for neuroprotection, or let's talk about, you know, IPC, getting down into some deep topics. Um, and then I, I want to then interview someone who's relevant to that topic. You know, a lot of my friends that people don't know about that are so, people might know about another field, but maybe in the rehab field we don't. Because a lot of our podcasts is they interview the same people. It's like, okay, Johnny Owens is on again talking about BFR over and over and over. We want to we bring in people that are really going to maybe open some eyes for rehab. And then we're going to take questions and answers. So Tori said we need a hook then for this question and answers. So if you go to http backslash 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 contact us and submit a question. If Tori picks it and we read it on the podcast – because we want to end with like maybe three questions or so. Yeah. Um, then we'll send a, a free ORS t-shirt. And they're sweet. They're like the nice material. Yeah. Ben's a real swaggy t-shirt guy. So he only picks the good stuff. You're welcome. You're welcome. And the catch is you have to be a subscriber on YouTube. Oh. To- ooh, Tori. Dropping yeah. the gauntlet. <laughs> well, and so you just go to YouTube and you type in. Go into YouTube, Owens Recovery Science. Okay. And you subscribe. Well, wait, and they need to subscribe to this podcast. Of course. Okay, so do both those things, right? Yeah. We're going to have this long checklist of what people need to do. Yeah. So subscribe to the podcast, the YouTube channel, like, yeah. comment, share. Yeah. 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 Five stars, right? You have to do five stars. Okay. Yeah, but that that I but that's what we want to do. So we want to talk about a deep topic. We want to interview an expert or someone really smart, and then we want to do some question and answers. So that's what the podcast is. Sorry I got so long-winded, but if most people who know me, that's the way I kind of roll. So <laughs> anything else you want to add, Tori? No. Okay. Have a good day. Oh, thanks. That was sweet. <laughs> <laughs>